There are situations in life where information is given on a need-to-know basis. This can happen for various reasons. Often it is because it would not actually be helpful for you to know everything. Sometimes too much information can be distracting. It's better if you just know what you need to know in order to complete the task at hand or achieve a specific goal. For example, let's say that you're a passenger on a commercial airplane flight and uh, during the flight the, uh, one of the flight attendants might come over to you and sort of discreetly say to you, uh, could you come up front for a minute? We need your help with something. So you go up there to the cockpit to discover that the pilot has died of a heart attack. And for whatever reason, they've determined that you are the best candidate uh, to take over. They're on autopilot right now, but somebody's got to grab these controls and actually land this thing pretty soon. And uh, they've asked you to do it, but you're not a pilot. Um, fortunately, this doesn't happen very often in real life. <laughs> it has almost never happened to me, but I've seen it in movies. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the person who, who doesn't know how to fly a plane sits down behind the, the, the control panel that's just covered with knobs and levers and gauges and blinking lights everywhere, and it's totally overwhelming, and they're freaked out, don't know how to do it. What do you do in that situation? Well, obviously, you put the headphones on. Because the headphones connect you to someone in the control tower who does know how to fly this plane, and uh, they're going to talk you through it step by step. But they're not going to take the time to explain to you how every one of those knobs or buttons or gauges works. There's no time for that. This is an emergency situation. Lives are at stake, and they're only going to tell you what you need to know in order to land the plane safely. That's the task at hand. Everything they tell you will be intended to achieve that specific goal. And that's kind of the principle that we see at work here in these, the final couple verses of chapter 20, when the Apostle John uh, lets us know that he's just giving us uh, need-to-know information about Jesus in order to achieve a specific goal. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So he's like, I could tell you a lot of things. I could fill up 10,000 pages of stories of everything that Jesus said and did, and it would all be amazing and fascinating stuff. But I'm not going to do that because I have a very specific goal in mind. You need to believe that Jesus is the Christ so you can have life in his name. And I'm just going to tell you what you need to know in order to get you there. And he doesn't specify that he's only talking to unbelievers to try to get them to believe in the first place and receive life. Or if he's writing to Christians hoping to strengthen their faith, get them to keep Believing and hold on to the life. He doesn't, uh, you know, target a, a certain subgroup or demographic like that. He says, these are written so that you may believe. You are the target audience 
whoever you are, the target audience is you. If you are reading these words or hearing them preached, everyone within the sound of my voice, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, the goal is the same, that you would believe in Jesus Christ. In a very real sense, your life depends on what you believe about Jesus. So just like in the airplane, this is an emergency situation. Lives are at stake. He's not going to tell you how every button works and tell you every word Jesus ever said or all the wonderful miracles that he ever did. He's going to tell you what you need to know about Jesus. That has been his goal throughout the entire Gospel of John. But this morning, as we look at just this section of chapter 20, we're going to see packed in there three things that we need to know about Jesus. And the first is that he conquered the grave. That's really the overarching theme of all of the stories that are presented here. That Jesus conquered the grave. He was dead, but now he's alive. Last week, uh, the passage focused on the death of Jesus, and Pastor Tim did a wonderful job of explaining uh, why it's so important that we know that Jesus really died, that his death wasn't a a hoax or a conspiracy or anything like that, that it was a very real, physical, human death. And now in this chapter, we see stories of people who had seen Jesus die. These were eyewitnesses to the brutal death of Jesus Christ. And now they're encountering the very alive, resurrected Jesus Christ. And they begin to tell other people who in turn have their own encounter with him, who tell other people. We see that cycle repeated a couple of times here. Mary encountered Jesus at the tomb, and then she tells the disciples about it, and then they have their own encounter with Jesus. But Thomas wasn't there. So the next time they're with Thomas, they tell him about it, and then he ends up having his own encounter with Jesus. And all these stories are presented as like testimonies of personal Encounters with people who can attest to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John presents these because we need to know this, that Jesus Christ is alive and that he conquered the grave. It is important for us to know that because if we know that Jesus conquered the grave, we will know that we can trust his word. It gives authority to the things that he had been saying because he had repeatedly said and made clear that this would happen, that he would die and that he would rise again from the grave. For example, in Matthew chapter 16, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter didn't get it. And he had a hard time accepting it and didn't want to believe it. In fact, the disciples generally reacted that way when Jesus would say these things. They, they had a hard time getting their minds around this. Like, I like the one in John chapter 2 where it says that Jesus answered them, 
destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And it says in the next verse, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed in the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So they didn't really believe it at the time. When he was saying it, they were like, okay, buddy, what are you even talking about? But then, when Jesus rose from the dead, they were like, ah, we get it now. We see it now. This is actually awesome. It kind of reminds me of like watching one of those old Bob Ross uh, shows. You remember Bob Ross? Are we going to be Bob Ross fans in here? A few of you. Uh, the big poofy hair, the, the constant whispering, always whispering about, just put some happy clouds. Just put a few happy clouds up there. You know? Just check him out if, it's, if you haven't seen it. It's, it's, it's a great show because he's a great painter and he'll always tell you that he's going to paint something amazing like, like a mountain range like that. At the beginning, he's like, we're going to do a mountain range today. And you're like, all right, I'm in. Let's do this. And he starts to paint the mountain range. And for most of the show, it's just kind of a blob, generally in the shape of a mountain range, but it's not particularly impressive. And you're like, what is this guy even doing? He's just whispering the whole time. He seems weird. He might be out of his mind, but I'm just going to keep going and watch the show. And then at some point, he'll do something to make you uh, think that he has ruined the painting. If you've ever seen the show, you know what I mean. Like in the middle of it, he'll be like... Uh, here, let's try this color. And you're like, ugh, that looks terrible. What are you doing? It was, it was looking okay, but you've ruined it now. There's no coming back from this, but he keeps going. And then right at the very end, the very end, he'll just be like, oh, let's, let's, put, a little, uh, let's put a little accent, let's put a little snow on those mountaintops, and he'll just kind of do some little thing, like, doop, 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 doop. And then all of a sudden, instantly, it looks like that. And you're like, whoa, he was building that the whole time. It was, it, it, he, he knew what he was doing. And, uh, you know, if you watch a few of these programs, you come to expect this. You, you, you see him create enough of these beautiful mountain ranges, you start to have a kind of confidence that if he says that he's going to paint a beautiful mountain range, you know one thing for sure. By the end of this show, a beautiful mountain range is going to be on that canvas, even if along the way he seems like a maniac and it looks like it's ruined. Okay, we can take down the picture. It's a little unnerving to have him, like, smiling down at us like that, like he's gazing into our souls. But I think that the disciples must have felt that way about Jesus a lot of the time that they were following him, like, pretty confused about what was going on. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Some of the things that he says seem a little crazy. But then when Jesus rose from the dead, it's like they saw the picture fall into place. And it was beautiful. And they realized that he was the fulfillment of prophecies in God's word from centuries ago. And that he is the one foretold in the scriptures. The Christ, the Son of God, and that all along there was a divine authority to the things that he was saying about life and death and salvation and the kingdom of God. Because he rose from the dead, we know that we can trust 
his word. And we also know that we personally can have hope in the face of our own mortality. Because Jesus didn't just go around making predictions about what was going to happen to him and his death and resurrection and things. He said a lot of things that have very much to do with us. He made promises from God that apply to us. Like, for example, here's one in John chapter 6. Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Like, that's a crazy thing to say, right? Unless you can prove it. And when he rose from the grave, he proved that he was able to make good on that promise that he had made to us, that he had made to everyone who for the rest of all human history would look on the Son and believe in him. We know that we will be raised up on the last day. He made good on that by rising himself to prove that he has the very power of life. And this becomes our hope in the face of our own mortality. I was probably, I remember about eight years old or so when I started thinking about death. I think that's kind of when I kind of became aware that I was going to die someday. And, and, and the thought of death always kind of terrified me because I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so I didn't have any hope that there was anything beyond death. I just thought when you die, that's it. And so that always kind of hung over me like this cloud as I was growing up and going through life that I always knew that someday it would come to an end and everything would just go black and it would be like I didn't, it would, I wouldn't exist anymore and it would be like I had never existed because from my point of view, there's no memory of anything. So like, what's the point of life even? I mean, I was, I was kind of a morbid child, I'll give you that. <laughs> not the most fun eight-year-old to, to be going around thinking about that stuff but um, but that cloud hung over me until I was in my mid-twenties when I was 26 years old Jesus came into my life and showed me that death is not the end that there is hope beyond the grave that eternal life was real. He proved it by rising from the dead. And that cloud that had hung over me finally dispersed and the light of his truth shone through. And I began to experience a radiant joy like I had never known before. So for me, this particular point is very personal and very meaningful because it was my entry point into the faith. The fact that through Jesus, we have victory over death because he has conquered the grave. Amen? That's the first thing that we need to know about Jesus. The second is this, that he forgives our sin. He forgives our sin. In this part of the chapter, verses 19 through 23, the story of when Jesus appeared to the disciples when they were locked away in that hidden room. 
Jesus appeared to them and said some things to them, and he said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then he breathes on them. They receive the Holy Spirit. So he's basically commissioning them, sending them out to do this work, which is a continuation of the work that he was sent by the Father to do. And what does he tell them about what that work is? He says one thing to them in the next verse. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So he doesn't say, I'm sending you out uh, to do miracles or to uh, teach primarily. I mean, those are things that they did. But the one statement that he makes that he really wants them to know about this is that the work that they're doing and the work that he has done and the work that God the Father sent him into the world to do had to do primarily with the forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness of sin is the very heart of the gospel message because our fellowship with God was severed because of our sin. So Jesus came and led a sinless life so he could offer himself as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of others. He suffered and died on our behalf to pay for our sin. And when he rose from the grave, it proved that God had accepted that sacrifice and that the curse of sin and death had finally been broken and our fellowship with God restored. I love the way that John Piper uh, puts it. He says, forgiveness is essentially God's way of removing the great obstacle to our fellowship with him. By canceling our sin and paying for it with the death of his own son, God opens the way for us to see him and know him and enjoy him forever. That's what it looks like to have life in Jesus' name, to see him, know him, enjoy him forever. And forgiveness of sin is an essential part of getting there because it means that I take what Jesus has done and I apply it to myself, not only believing that he died and rose again as like things that happened. I don't just believe them with my mind as historical facts. I take that belief down into my heart and I respond to it. I believe that he died for me. And I believe that his death on the cross was necessary to purchase my forgiveness because I'm a sinner. And in order to have fellowship with him and to be in his presence, my sin has to be forgiven and cleansed. And so I believe that that applies to me. And by believing that, and by believing that he rose from the dead, I gain access to that resurrection power because he has promised it to me. That's the kind of belief that the Apostle John is talking about when he says, I wrote these things that you may believe and have life in his name. It's a belief that isn't just some idea that floats around in your brain. It's a, it's a belief that demands a response and that response is, Lord, forgive me. 
And it's accompanied by the knowledge that Jesus himself is that forgiveness. He forgives our sin. We need to know that. That's why he included it in this gospel story. Jesus conquered the grave. Jesus forgives our sin. The third thing that we see here that we need to know is that Jesus can handle our doubt. Right, when I say doubt, you know this brings us to the story of Thomas, good old Thomas. Doubting Thomas. The, the, the disciples tell him that Jesus is still alive and he's like, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. And because he responded that way, he gets this nickname slapped on him for the rest of human history, Doubting Thomas. Everybody calls him Doubting Thomas. I personally think that he gets kind of a bad rap with that nickname because if that's like your name, it creates the impression that like, that's your leading characteristic. Like this is a guy who just goes around doubting everything all the time. You know, like I'm going to meet this guy and be like, hey, Thomas, good to meet you. My name's Josh. Oh, is it? Hi, Josh. <laughs> Likely story. Like, what? Why is he be being that way? Don't worry, it's just doubting Thomas. He just doubts everything. That's how he is. He's just like that. But the Bible gives us no evidence that he's like that generally. It's not like he shows up in all these other Bible stories just sort of doubting everything. Like, he fed 5,000 people. 5,000 50 tops, you know, that's it. Water to wine, there's grape juice. You know, just doubting everything. But the Bible doesn't say that. It says that he doubted one time. He expressed that doubt, and he got slapped with this nickname. The thing is, if you give somebody a nickname like that, uh, a nickname is a way where you can sort of uh, marginalize somebody and dismiss them. But I don't think we should dismiss Thomas. I want to suggest something here about Thomas that might be a little, I don't know, is it controversial to like have sympathy for doubting Thomas? Even if it is, I'm going to go there anyway because I believe that it was not unreasonable for Thomas to doubt that Jesus had risen from the dead, right? Because the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is a fundamentally unbelievable piece of information, right? He didn't doubt that because he has a doubt problem. He doubted it because it is very hard to believe that that actually happened. It is fantastic. It's supernatural. It's miraculous. And yes, the disciples had seen him perform miracles. So maybe, you know, you'd say, well, he should have believed that he could do a miracle. But he did those, all, all those other miracles while he was still alive. How can he reasonably be expected to perform another miracle after he's dead? How can anybody do anything after they're dead? Nobody can do that. It's impossible. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. And Thomas knew that only God can do that. Which is why when he saw the resurrected Christ with his own eyes, his response was beautiful. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. In that moment, all doubt was stripped away and he knew beyond the shadow of any doubt 
that Jesus was exactly who he had been claiming to be, the Christ, the Son of God. And he declared him to be his own personal Lord. There's something I want us to notice, though, about this interaction between Jesus and Thomas. Jesus was aware of, these, of the doubt that, uh, that Thomas had expressed. And he wasn't angry with him about it. When he showed up and saw Thomas, he didn't scold Thomas for having doubts. He didn't have contempt for Thomas. He didn't make him feel stupid about it. He didn't seem annoyed by it or in any, or in any way threatened by the doubt that Thomas had expressed. On the contrary, he was willing to come and meet with Thomas and address those doubts specifically and very personally. And Jesus will do that for us too. It's very important for us to know this. It has tremendous implications both for believers and unbelievers to know that Jesus can handle our doubts. As believers... We can sometimes feel like if we are struggling with doubts about some aspect of the faith, some, some theological point that we don't understand or, or perplexed at how God works, wrestling with some question like that, we can feel like it's, it's not okay to express those things, like it's going to seem like we're not good Christians. Like Christians are just supposed to have this like ironclad, unquestioning belief. And so we better just keep quiet about it and just go with the program and stuff those things down. But Thomas here in this story serves as a kind of a model for how we as Christians can and should express our doubts and ask our questions within the context of community. And the Lord himself will help us to resolve him, to resolve those doubts, like he did with Thomas. I'm not saying that he's going to show up bodily in your room and talk to you. I've never had that happen. I've never known any Christians who have had that happen. But I have had the experience of wrestling with doubts and questions and bringing them to the Lord and asking him specifically, Lord, what am I supposed to do with this? Please help me. This, was, this happened a lot when I was newer to the faith and I was discovering the truths of Christianity. I'm reading the Bible and uh, you know, I was already a person who's well into my 20s and so... Um, this stuff was new to me, and a lot of it struck me as like, ugh, like, what, what am I supposed to do with this? And so there were times when I, I was a believer, right? I was a believer like Thomas was, because Thomas wasn't, uh, he didn't jump ship. You know, when these guys were hiding out, in that upper room locked in there for fear of persecution. I mean, that sort of separates the wheat from the chaff. Thomas was still there. He was like among them because he was a believer. Even though he doubted something that was an important part of the faith. He didn't stuff that 
doubt down to go with the program. He expressed it openly and honestly. And I know that in my experience, the times that I did that, I would come to the Lord and, and tell him, Lord, I'm having a hard time believing this or that thing. And I would find that the Spirit of the Lord would meet me where I was at and he would guide me toward the resolution of those doubts. And that part of that was expressing those doubts to believers and having them help me work through these things. And I know that, you know, many of us in this room, if you've been walking with the Lord for a while and you've gone through some seasons of doubt, you've had that experience too and part of your testimony is that you can be honest with the Lord about what you're struggling with and He will help you. We don't have to pretend to be doubt-free. Jesus can handle our doubts. It's important for unbelievers to know this as well because I've encountered a lot of uh, non-Christian people over the years who will say something to me like, yeah, it's great that you're a Christian. Uh, I actually envy your faith. I wish I could believe. I've had people say to me, I wish I could believe, but I just can't because I have too many doubts. It's like they look at me as a Christian or look at us as Christians and they think that the reason why we're Christians is because we're just inherently doubt-free people who never ask the same questions that they do. But that's not true, is it? They think that because they have doubts and questions about the faith, that this like disqualifies them from even starting to try to have a relationship with God. They're just not that kind of people. But this story of Thomas shows that you don't have to be a doubt-free person in order to have a relationship with God. You can bring those doubts and questions to him and work through those in the context of Christian community. And he will help you to find answers to those things that are very personal and specific and meet you right where you need it. Because that's who Jesus is. And that is part of what we needed to know these are the things that the Apostle John from the control tower told us through the headphones of his word that we need to know about Jesus. He conquered the grave. He forgives our sin. And he can handle our doubt. So bring it to him. And it is my prayer that everyone listening today whether you're already a believer or not, may know and embrace these things and fully lay hold of the glorious gift of life in Jesus' name that he wants us to have.